Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast, our Sabbath School from Home podcast. Uh, I'm very glad to be back. I was not here for last week's recording and uh, very much looking forward to this discussion. Uh, we've got some interesting ideas to explore uh, this week. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day, Ken here. And I haven't been here for much more than just last week, uh, but I'm really looking forward to our discussion tonight. And I'm Lachlan, and because of the quirks of the way our recording sessions have worked, I'm still recording from my COVID isolation room, but I'm looking forward to being able to get out of this of this isolation tomorrow if everything goes well. So, um, yeah, this is a great way to spend some time where I can't be physically with uh, other people as much as I'd like to. Yeah, and obviously we're not all in lockdown, but we are still recording via Zoom. So every week when we do this recording, we get to relive the the lockdown experience and um you're doing it authentically lock you are you're genuinely isolating from from everyone uh (laughs) i'm also recording in a house at the moment in my little shed loft with a fierce wind blowing outside so hopefully the listeners uh can cope with a bit of background noise uh this week we're looking at extreme heat uh fairly topical my uncle uh who was flying out from the uk had a holiday with us and flew home, landed at Gatwick uh, while it was 41.2 degrees Celsius outside. And that that counts almost anywhere as a fairly extreme heat. Now, um, it, with, within this lesson, we've noticed this actually in previous lessons, that, that this metaphor of crucible lends itself to uh, exploration in lots of different directions. And at the start of the quarter, we were suspicious about whether it would be possible to fill up 13 weeks of useful discussion and again they've managed to fill a single week with as many ideas and bible verses as could occupy many quarters um (laughs) so this week this week we are expected to talk about hosea about job about abraham sacrificing isaac about uh some pauline verses in the new testament about a passage from isaiah um it's, it reminds me of a an exam question that I once saw on a on a list of you know improbable and and uh, unlikely but completely terrifying exam questions, um, and this one was a history exam question and it said something like uh, describe the social, economic and political impact of the papacy on uh, Central Europe, the Americas and Southeast Asia. Um, be brief, concise, and specific. <laughs> so we've got a lot, got a lot to attempt, and we're going to single in on the Job passage. So this this lesson is on surviving extreme heat, moments of intense suffering. Job certainly qualifies. The lesson recommends to us that one method we can survive. It has various ways we can survive. Uh, what are they? Look, I've don't have the list in front of me, but there's. Uh, survive. Um, there's worship, um, uh, yeah, and and hope. I think those are some yeah. of the themes singled out specifically. Okay, well, um, the lesson uses Job chapter one as its reference for um, surviving trial and suffering through worship. It mentions, well, let's read the chapter and let's see if we think that this, this is a, a fruitful use of the book of Job and whether whether it provides a lot of insight. 
Um, Ken, do you want to kick us off with Job chapter 1? Yes. Uh, Let me start. Uh, This is from the Hebrew Bible. A man there was in the land of Uz, Job his name. And the man was blameless and upright and feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons were born to him and three daughters. And his flocks came to 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yokes of cattle and 500 she-asses and a great abundance of slaves. Um, I wonder what the significance of the gender of the donkeys was. Um, In any event, um, uh, and that man was greater than all the Easterners. And his sons would go and hold a feast in each one's house on his set day, and they would call to their sisters to eat and drink with them. And it happened when the days of the feast came round that Job would send and consecrate them and rise early in the morning and offer up burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job thought, perhaps my sons have offended and cursed God in their hearts. Thus would Job do at all times. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, Ken, what does your translation say there? The adversary. Is it Satan? The adversary. Yeah, okay. Mm. Came among them. Is it the or a? The. Right. Capitalised. Right. Uh, The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? I found a God had kept his mouth shut. Um, you know, his, <laughs> Job his, would have been so much better off. <laughs> okay. But well, we have to come back to this idea. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only... Against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, Job doesn't seem to be as bad off as his servants. Well, I would, or, or, Why his, his sons and daughters. Yeah. While he was yet speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped you. Now, why did God say you're not allowed to touch Job's person, but we're allowed to burn up servants? Um, and then the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And the chapter finishes by saying, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Now, there's one thing that I just want to pick up in those last few verses, and I think that might be where our focus will be in in large part. And it's a distinction between the uh, uh, translation that you read, Locke, and the Hebrew Bible here that I have. Uh, And it said, And Job rose and tore his garment and shaved his head and fell to the earth and bowed down. Hmm. Now, one of the 
particular efforts that the translator of this particular version of the Bible took was not to create commentary or interpretation, but simply to render the text as literally, if you like, as one can. And, and it made me wonder whether or not there was a distinction between bowing down and falling to the ground and worshipping. Uh, whether mm. the, whether the, there is an, an assumption that bowing down involves worship. So that's, that's my first question, and it's not one that I think that perhaps we have the expertise to answer. Um, the second question is, uh, what does it mean to worship? Uh, we often associate worship as something that is a positive experience. It means uh, it means that Job went to a church building between the hours of nine thirty and twelve thirty on a Saturday morning, and participated <laughs> in a service. Can that it consisted but, uh, of several songs, a, a prayer, a children's story, and a sermon? Uh, in the day, in in my earlier days, it would not have been several. It would have only been three, and there would have been the offering and prayer between two of them, and the sermon between the second and third. But um, uh, I, and I hear what you say, but that's not really the point that I'm getting at. <laughs> the the point. So that the second point then that I'm getting at is worship. In the case of Job. Uh, was not something uplifting. Uh, it was not even necessarily praise. Um, uh, indeed, when you read the passage, you can get a sense, I think, that Job is not here saying that uh, he's not happy about this. Uh, indeed, when you read the passage, it sounds almost sarcastic um uh, uh, oh isn't this wonderful i came from my mother's womb naked and that's how i'm going to go out what is the use of this it, it has a very ecclesiastes feel to it yeah. i think um uh it, it you you come naked you go naked and really what happens in between uh good or bad uh ends up pretty meaningless because of those the nature of your entry and exit from the world. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. And forgive me if this is uh, sacrilegious, but there's a real sense that uh, you can read, may the Lord's name be blessed. Um, uh, that's, that's just a... Uh, that's not... In, if you like a almost a a, a praise, uh, it, it has on one way it seems it might have a feeling of well at least irony to it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, now I'm beginning. I'm yeah, beginning to I'm beginning to suspect <clears throat> Ken because um, what you're talking about plays out in much more detail in subsequent chapters. And we haven't even got to the part where Job's covered in boils and sitting on the ash heap. Um, I wonder if uh, restricting our attention to Job chapter 1 provides an incomplete view of ways to deal with suffering. And I, I wondered if perhaps in, in a 
lesson on extreme heat, whether our eyes could have been drawn to subsequent chapters. And I, I propose that we go and look there. I I share with you some skepticism about whether or not Job chapter 1 is recommending worship as a way to to cope with suffering. Because, and I, I, I don't read this passage quite as sarcastic, um, I read it as a contra, as setting up a benchmark against which Job's subsequent viewpoints are measured. Mm. So it's like at first Job was like, yeah, okay, God's in charge, this is fine. And then you turn over two chapters and Job's like, where's God? What's he doing? What use is he? Why won't he come and talk to me? Um, so, um, so sort of retrospectively we see this as slightly hollow, but maybe maybe it was well meant at the time. But the narrative writer is is using it to say, all right, well, so Job did this stuff and he didn't sin. And then, and then now we're ready for our story. And the point of the story is uh, that Job is accused in subsequent chapters of sinning and charging God with wrong. Mm-hmm. In all of this, Job did not sin. He, he did not once blame God. The whole central point of the book, well, the is perhaps too strong. One of the central points of the book is that Job does blame God and is that a sin? Ah, well, th- th- uh, let me just... Oh, sorry, Locke, I've interrupted you. But what, what I was going to do was, was say this. I've raised the sarcastic feel to it. I don't think it's where I settle at the end of the day, so I want to make that clear. But mm. you can see that there, um, uh, potentially. With all this, Job did not offend, nor did he put blame on God. He didn't blame God... He simply stated the facts as they are. So there was not an accusation, if you like, uh, against God. He was, and, and so in a sense, he did not offend, nor did he put blame on God. He simply stated the truth as it is. That does not mean it was a good truth or an easy truth or, or one that uh, led him to feel good or led to praise. Um, but he ke- the reason he is not blameworthy uh, in that is because he has told no lie. Um, he's stated as, as it is. Mm. The comment I was wanting to make goes back to our, our um, improvised commentary as we are reading through the verses. And it was one of us pointed out, why did God have to bring Job up? The, the weirdness here is, Job could blame God. It's God's fault, really. This whole thing, the the way that, and it's. I'm not just saying that as some angry person who doesn't like, you know, doesn't like bad things happening to good people or whatever. I'm I'm just commenting that my reading of the narrative itself implies that that God is, um, the, there's some responsibility that lands there, you know, <clears throat> and in fact, it's weird this word blame, because in verse eight. What God says to Satan is, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. Is that what it says in other translations? Mm. Mm. Um, So Job is blameless. And then at the end of the chapter, in all of this, Job did not blame God. And yet really, I think... Yeah, I think God is God is in the dock here. But the point Um, the point is, (laughs) and the the point is that Job chapter one is a bad place to stop. Because Job does put God in the dock. Mm. So 
So it's like it's like the narratives writer is saying, all right, so in all of this, he loses his kids, loses the donkeys, loses the servants, and God says, all right, well, uh, and Job says, all right, God's in charge, blah, 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 blah. And the narrative writer is saying, it's fairly obvious that there's nothing wrong in God in Job's response here. This is this is a safe response. All the religious people sitting in the pews can nod their heads and say, yeah, God's in charge. That's really good. Okay, right, well, buckle up because we're about to explore something that's going to put you on the edge of the seat where it's not obvious that Job is blameless. It's it's in genuine doubt. So when you... Mm. Job says, I wish I'd never been born in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, Eliphaz answers. And I'm... Oh, chapter 5, it continues. Let me read you a passage from chapter 5. Um, Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So don't despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Uh, From six calamities he will rescue you, in seven no harm will touch you, in famine he will deliver you from death, and in battle the stroke of the sword. You'll be protected from the lash of tongue and need not fear when destruction comes. This could be Psalm 91. Hmm. Uh, Well, that's one of Job's friends. That's one of Job's friends. To further illustrate your point, if we go to chapter 6... Yeah. And Job spoke out and he said, yeah. Could my anguish but be weighed and my disaster on the scales be borne, they will be heavier now than the sand of the sea. Thus my words are choked back, for Shaddai's arrows are in me. Their yeah, God's venom arrows, my God has drinks. shot me. The terrors yeah. of God beset me. Yeah. So so Job does, rep- and, and so um, Eliphaz says at first that, God's maybe disciplining you. He's looking after you. Um, maybe you've done something wrong. Uh, comes up. Um, you know, we Job's friends repeat some of the things perhaps that we have advocated ourselves in this lesson discussion on pain and suffering. Hmm. Hmm. Um, they they sort of hmm. they sort of bring out all the the. It's not like the arguments of Job's friends are obviously wrong, and so I, I think that Job chapter one is a setup. This stuff happened to Job. Job responded this way. Let's all agree. Do we all agree that Job's blameless in this? Yeah, okay, Job's blameless. Right. What happens about this? What happens about this? What happens What happens when Job stands up and says he wish he'd never been born? What happens when Job stands up and says, God, why aren't you talking to me? Um, you have a case to answer and you're remaining silent and I'm sick of it. Mm. And, and what's more, he says, well... Why should I really expect any different? Because there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, my, my strength is nothing compared to yours, and you can just do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's so many different verses to, to pick out. Um, Job says to God at one point, have I become a burden to you? Hmm. That's a, an evocative image. Um, why can't you forgive my sins? Uh I'm just scrolling through. I'm I'm up to chapter mm-hmm. eight. Well, we'll go go to chapter nine. And Job spoke out, and he said, "Of course, I knew it was so. How can man be right before God? I've, I've, I haven't got a chance." Um. Mm. One thing that that is very obvious is that there's a there's a rawness, I think, in the book of Job, uh, with Job's. Um, I mean, we we said it tongue in cheek, Cam. I think it was your words before we started recording. Job seems to be surviving here through rage, um, yeah. or at least something very similar to rage. There's there seems to be anger. Um, he's not. There may be some level like the verses you just quoted. Then uh, can 
God is, uh, Job is in some ways resigned to it. God, you're more powerful than me. I, I guess I just have to put up with it. But he's not quietly resigned. No, no. no he's going to he's going to point out the problem. <laughs> in chapter nine, in chapter nine, he says, um, "God's not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me, uh, so that His terror would frighten me no more. Then I'd be able to speak up without fear of Him." As it now stands, I can't. In other words, Job says, I'm at a disadvantage here because there's a power difference. Mm-hmm. God's he's right. This is, this, is, this is bullying in the workplace. There's a significant, he's right in the sense that there's a significant power differential. There's a significant power differential and God's basically, I can't speak out. And, and, and chapter 10 and verse 15, uh, uh, if I, uh, verse 14 even, uh, if I offended... You kept watch upon me, and of my crime would not acquit me. If I was guilty, alas for me. And though innocent, I could not raise my head, sated with shame and surfeited with disgrace. Like a triumphant lion, you hunt me over again, wondrously, wondrously smite me. I, I'm interested that the, that the lion um, metaphor is used there, because the very thing that the adversary said he was doing was roaming around the earth, um, and... When we go to the New Testament, we see uh, Satan described as uh, like a, a lion uh, mm. roaming around, seeing who he would devour. And here, uh, Job says, "Well, actually, God, you're the lion looking hunting me." Hmm. And Job's friends are not happy with this. It's pretty clear in their eyes that what Job is saying is is blasphemous. Um, they, they are going to take him in hand and they're going to counsel him and help him. And there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, I'm up to Job 11 now. And as Zophar says, or Zophar says, can you, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Amati? They're higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They're deeper than the depths below. What do you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Um, you know, this is... This it's, resembles very much some of the psalms I really enjoy reflecting on um, when I see a wide expanse of stars above or um, an open ocean with waves coming in. Or, you know, so um, they, are, they, they think that Job should survive his suffering. What, I mean, what do they want? They think he should be definitely a bit more, um, uh, what's it called, where, where you're in a sacred place and you should behave with reverence. Reverend, reverend, mm. yeah. They think he should be more reverent. Um, uh, certainly, uh, I don't think if you asked Zophar, he would say that Job was surviving his trial through worship. No, we're going to have a lot to say about the closing chapters of Job. Uh, the intervening chapters have a lot more of the same. But shall we? Shall we jump to the chapters at the end? Well, before we do, there's two troubling details of the book of Job that we need to at least address um, slightly. The first is the collateral damage. So we commented on this as we read through. It's okay. It's all okay not to touch the hair on Job's head, but what about all these servants that are killed by the sword or struck by the by the lightning or whatever it is? What about Job's children? Now, I I noticed as we read through, and in fact, I've just been looking to to see if I can check that this is consistent. I think if you if you read Job as a narrative, 
The reason why it doesn't matter that Job's children and all these servants die in the narrative is because they're not named characters. The, the book of Job is about Job, who is named, God, who is named, Satan, who is named to some extent, although really Satan doesn't feature very much, and the friends who are named. And it seems to me the only character in the book of Job who, though not named, actually persists in any way through the whole book is the wife, Job's wife. Um, so from a narrative perspective, the unnamed characters are obviously expendable. And we, we, we are, in the context of this book, we are not meant to care about them. That's what I think. The trouble is, we encounter this sort of stuff all the time in real life, in our own lives. Um, the, the person who has recently lost a parent and gets told, ah, but this, you know, this hardship, God's, God's, this hardship is so that you can, whatever, you know, um, the, grown be character. refined in the crucible, yeah. right? Grow, grown carrier. Okay, that's fine. Except that they weren't just your parent. They were a colleague. They were uh, a neighbor. They were, you know, there are many, many grieving people at a funeral. Is it that God has taken that person, let's say they're, they're, they're younger than we think they should have died? And it's and it's a, it's a perceived as a great loss. Uh, is God trying to do something didactic to all of the people simultaneously that we're in touch? You know, what I'm saying is this question of collateral damage has to come up. Um, yeah. It has to whenever you want to attribute a difficult and painful experience to God as being an experience that is intended by God to result in some good. Mm. It's... Is it good for all involved? The book of Job says, no, there's collateral damage. I, I, I come back to it. In, in the context of the narrative of the book of Job, I think that the author is hoping that we don't care. Um, and, and it's implied that we shouldn't care because at the end of it, Job ends up with even more children and, oh, great, everything's fixed. I think we are slightly wrong in the context of this book to get too emotional about that and say, oh, well, hang on, replacement children can't heal the wounds of the children, you know, the, the emotional, mental scarring from the children that, that were lost. That's, I don't think, what the book of Job is exploring. So that's the first one, collateral damage. The second one is the glue that holds together all of the various verses that the, that the lesson tries to invoke in this week's study. What's the common theme? Abraham being instructed by God to sacrifice Isaac. Hosea being instructed by God to marry a prostitute. Satan being, let's maybe not say instructed by God, but explicitly allowed by God to cause all of this damage. The consistent theme in these particular biblical passages is the willful, knowledgeable intent of God in the, in the causing of these things. And it's interesting to me, because that sounds like a pretty hard accusation to level at the feet of God, and I would I would do so very carefully. But it seems to me that all of these passages um, come in. I mean, I think perhaps the Abrahamic one is is in some ways the most troubling. It's the least. It's the most historical and narrative like, and the least sort of poetic and um, uh, parable like, I suppose. Um, of those three examples. But what do we do with this idea? Well. Of, of God's will, willful agency in, in events that are troublingly painful. Your comment, Locke, that you would hesitate to attribute 
this intent to God is mm. the approach of Job's friends. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> they, they are very hesitant to say, no, God's, there's something happening here that you're not, maybe you're a bad person, maybe you're growing in mm. this, maybe there's God's ways are just bigger and whatever than yours. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of dimensions to it. Uh, Locke, this is, this is opening a different wormhole, but your comment about someone dying before we think they should have. Mm. Um, is it any less sad if they die when we think they should? Um, so, I mean, the alternative to dying young is getting old, uh, which has its own, you know, it's its own mm. sadness to it. Um, and they're mm. the two options that are open to us. So I've told this story before, but it's like the students who at my school who tell me not to fly an aeroplane because I might die. And I tell them that I am actually going to die anyway, even if I <laughs> even if I don't fly an aeroplane. And then they say, well, you might die. The best comment I had was you might die at an um, inconvenient time. So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a great um, title for a book, isn't it? A convenient time to die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it could be a James Bond film or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but this is this is then the question um, that Job. Uh, it's one of the questions it's asking: Are we allowed to say, God, I just think this is not right, and I'm going to hold you responsible? What's fascinating in the Book of Job. The, the 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 character and role of Satan is one of the most fascinating things to me about the book of Job because it's it's just fluidly invoked in chapter one that we read out. Um, fluidly, the accuser. Um, um, and then chapter two again, and then nothing. Absolute nothing. Not mentioned, not commented on by God, no ex no level of answer or explanation from God. Oh, well, actually, Job, there was this meeting and we were chatting in heaven and, and you see, you know, I was trying to sort of prove a point. Absolutely nothing. Completely vanishes from the rest of the book. There is no Satan. There is no accuser. There's no nothing. It's just Job and God okay. um, and, and, and the friends. And that is just so bizarre. And, and There's a sense in which Job takes over the role of the accuser. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think two other reflections, well, a number of other reflections on this. Um, uh, I think one thing that the book of Job does do is recognise the difficulty of living in a world where bad things happen to good people. Uh, it's a struggle that we have and explaining it and coming to a nice conceptual um, resolution of it uh, is, in the end, uh, an impossible task. Uh, and Job essentially recognises that because the resolution of it is, in the end, uh, not conceptual but experiential. Um, it's an encounter. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's my first comment. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to forget the others now, Cam. Carry on. Okay. Uh, are you sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to say is Job's frustration only exists because he believes in the goodness of God. Mm, if you, that's a good point. If you, don't believe, if you don't believe God is good, why, why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? So 
so this is the this is the the thing when when I talk to some of my secular friends and their response more or less is well this is the way the universe is we've just got to deal with it hmm. there's a pragmatic level at which that's often an appropriate response where you just have to say all right well these are the circumstances we'll live with it but what job says is i the, i i don't think this is right i'm not i'm not willing to accept i've i've a picture of something much uh, of goodness and for mm. job being a religious person that's god i've a picture of god and it is inconsistent with what i'm seeing here and the point that god makes at the end is to affirm job's uh frustration so god says you job is in the right um if you look at bad things that are happening undeserved and well even maybe mm. deserved but that's a whole separate question but when you see bad stuff happening and you try and explain it away that is that is reflects poorly on my character you're trying to say that I'm the sort of God who's who's happy with all this stuff. Mm. Um, so, so what we are called to as Christians is not a neat explanation of suffering. We are called to um, uh, internal conflict. Yeah. God says, I want you to live a life where this stuff continues to irritate you, frustrate you, enrage you, um, where you can look at bad things happening and and not become numb to it and not just pass, pass it and say, well, you know, God's got a big plan and God's going to fix it and it'll all work together for good and it's fine. Um, uh, God says, no, I'd, I'd much prefer you be cross sometimes. You know, I'd, I'd prefer you to be, mm. be cross because the thing is, gen- it's something genuine to be cross about. It's a bit like, it's a bit like there's an episode, um, I think it's one of the QI episodes, but it's one of the British comedy shows I saw once where they were discussing um, hypochondriacs and the panellists were made to do a, a, a test to identify whether they were hypochondriac and um, David Mitchell who's a comedian I enjoy for his sort of um, very logical approach to things points out that this is totally meaningless unless they also have a medical examination because <laughs> if you believe yourself to be near death's door and you are in fact near death's door you are not a hypochondriac <laughs> and so yeah. so when when you stand up and say this is wrong and it makes me cross and this is not mm. what god this is not in keeping with who he is and this is irrational and i wish he could come in and sort it out but he doesn't seem to be doing it um that is not an inappropriate response if it is indeed the case that what's happening is wrong and if it is indeed mm. the case that god is in charge but he has chosen not to intervene. And if it is indeed the case that what is happening is contrary to God's character, then what Job is doing is merely being truthful. So what I hear you describing, Cam, is the spiritual gift of protest. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that. And the more I I think about this problem, the more I think that Christians have not been given an explanation of suffering. We're not called to... Mm to comfort with this we're not meant to we it's not god god's intent for us to get to a point where we say oh yeah oh that makes sense now because maybe the thing just doesn't make sense maybe there's so many variables involved and so many conflicting interests at stake um you know the interest of moral freedom the interest of 
indeterminacy of the inanimate world, um, the interest of God to involve relationship but to respect causality. Maybe there's just like so much involved that the constraints are too large. Hmm. Um, and that the, the system that we're living in is not, doesn't meet all the constraints. And to say that they are too large is not to undermine uh, God's power. Uh, it's simply to recognise the nature of what we, of, of the world that we live in and interact with him in. Um, there is a sense in which he is responsible for that. He made the world as it is with the capacities for good and evil. Uh, and in a sense, that's recognised uh, in Job chapter one. Um, this is this is what this is the way God has set things up. Now, the uh, argument then is, well, this is in fact the best possible world that God could create. Uh, again, that's not limiting uh, within those constraints that some of them mm. you've spoken about, Cam. Um, uh, now, that doesn't mean that God's not. It's the best possible, best possible requires what a mathematician would call a metric. How, how do you measure goodness? But so you could, as, as for instance, um, a universe that contained no pain and suffering but contained no life. Yeah. Um, as an extreme example, is that is that better? Uh, Job seems to think that it might be at points. He says, "I wish I'd never been born." Mm. Uh, but but that's an example of the sorts of constraints. Um, mm. So you know what does what does goodness mean in this? What what metric do you use? Uh, and and ultimately you have to say, um, God seems to have think thought it worthwhile. Although even then you have that um, passage in Genesis, don't you, where God was sorry that He made the world. Um, so <laughs> you know maybe there are times where God says, "Ah." Um, yeah, but after being sorry f that he made the world, he was then sorry. He repented of d having destroyed, destroyed it. the world. You're no, right. Did he? He promised not to do it again. That's not quite the same as repenting. Well, yeah. yeah. I'll accept the point anyway. <clears throat> Let's have a look at some of the closing verses. So there's there's beautiful poetic verses where God, God's it's really interesting because God affirms a lot of what Job's friends said. God does say, "Hey, I'm above. I've my ways are above your ways." Um, but I'm looking at Job 38 and. Uh, finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. He said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk about without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Up on your feet, stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Um, where were you when the earth was made? Um, where were you when the morning stars sang in chorus and uh, when the ocean was formed? And there's beautiful poetry. Um, and it, have you ever ordered the morning to get up? Um, uh, and he goes on and on. We won't read the whole thing because it, it, it's a fairly extended passage and I'm eyeing the clock. Mm. It continues into Job 39, into chapter 40, and Job answers, uh, I'm speechless in all words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. That's from the message. Um, uh, God asks more questions. Now, it's interesting that God, Job says, oh, I shouldn't have, I spoke out of turn. I was... But God never says to Job, you were wrong to ask questions. Hmm. And there's a book which is God of Sense, Traditions of Nonsense, 
which is by who's it by Ken Sigvi Tonstad. Yes, I haven't and the said pre- his name. The premise correctly. of his book, the premises of his book is that the Christian tradition has sided with Job's friends. The the official position mm. of the church is this is too complicated for you to understand. It's blasphemous to try and blame God. Just leave it in his hands. That's fine. And he makes the observation that his friends say that. Job says that, but God never says to Job, you were wrong to ask those questions. God says to Job's friends, you were wrong hmm. to give then those he answers. Says in chapter 42, my wrath has flared against you and your two companions because you have not spoken rightly of me, as did my servant Job. Yeah, see, I like I like that. God saying, "Are you are you inferring that I'm happy with all of this? Um, you know, that's you've been saying bad things about me behind my back. You've been saying I'm the sort of God who's who's okay with all of this death and destruction." We're we're coming towards the end. Um, I think Lachlan, you pointed out earlier that none of Job's children were named. There is something quite beautiful at the end of Job chapter 42. And the Lord blessed Job's latter days more than his former days, and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yokes of oxen and 1,000 she-asses, and he had seven sons and three daughters. The sons remained nameless, however, and he called the name of the first one Dove, and the name of the second Cinnamon, and the name of the third Horn of Eyeshade. And there were no women in the land so beautiful as Job's daughters." And their father gave them an estate among their brothers. Wow. I didn't notice that when I was looking at names. Um, that is that is really nice. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how does that suggest that we ought survive in our own life moments of extreme heat and how we ought interact with other people who are who are, you know, in mm. the crucible? Uh I think there's a sense in which the Book of Job affirms honesty, and if if yeah. we are just cross with God, there has has to be some safe space within our religious tradition and community for us to say that. I mean, what was God expecting Job's friends to do? Was God well? Were they were they meant to say, "Oh, you're right, Job. Um, <laughs> we'll just sit here with you and listen to it all." Uh, yeah, um, I've heard many people try from the book of Job to work out, to use it as a guideline to teach us what we should do when friends of ours are in dark suffering. Um, it, seem, it seems to, to give uh, some examples of what not to do, but, but not very clearly to give examples that, of what we should do. What do it's a very difficult situation. What does the... Um, is it Paul or is it Christ? You're going to have to help me with the reference where it says, be happy with those who are happy and be sad with those who are sad. Hmm. So, I mean, maybe maybe one of the things we can take away is empathy. Where would that verse be? What would I search for? Um, Romans twelve fifteen. It is. It, it is. is. It's Romans 12. Mm. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. It says, live in harmony with one another. This is following on from that verse. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Maybe that includes people not just lowly in terms of like from lower socioeconomic groups. Maybe it means people who are lowly in spirit or even mm. even faith. People who are just down and out and discouraged. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we could definitely take away, I, I'm not sure it's true of all, I'm not sure it's true of all Adventist churches, but, but many in my experience prioritize the joy, the hope, the thankfulness, many of the positive aspects of, of living the Christian life. Um, you know, the, the instruction, you know, that wasn't allowed enough hello or welcome back so i'm going to invite it again you know what if what if everyone in the congregation is just at rock bottom and that the 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 very measly moanful hello that you get back from the congregation that that is where they're at there's nothing there's nothing baked into our adventist culture that accepts that idea no you're at church there's a lot to be thankful for come on praise more loudly dance not dance uh but sing, sing more, more heartily. Yeah. Um, so, so I think one of the things that we could do better would be to um, let church be a safer place for people in Job's experience. Yeah. One, this, this, uh, it's wrong to end such a serious podcast on a light-hearted note, possibly. But uh, Ken and I were talking some weeks ago. I don't know if you remember Ken about renovations at Launceston Church. And um, the a cry room, particularly. And I wondered whether perhaps churches could install a cry room for adults. <laughs> so when you're just when you're just too cross, it has to be soundproof, and you can go in there and just scream. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm saying. The spiritual gift of protest. Yeah. You could call it. You could call it the prayerful protest room. Yeah. No prayerful protest place. Yeah. There you are. Good. Good. Uh, well done. There is a sense in which, though, we are very uncomfortable with lament. Mm. Um, uh, we, and in part, that is the result of uh, a, I'm going to call it a Gnosticism, or a reverse Gnosticism. Uh, mm. uh, one in which uh, our life here and now is treated as unimportant. Uh in a way that is uh, uh, disrespectful of the fact that Christ was incarnated into our existence. Mm. Um, what what you said has reminded me of a comment that someone said to me in the last few weeks, Ken. Uh, it's a problem if it is a problem. It is widespread be in our culture beyond just our Christian community. What this person commented on was the change in the way funerals happen. Uh, funerals are about celebrating the life of rather than about mourning the loss of. The vocabulary has shifted. And it was the, the, the comment, it, the person that told me this, I can't even remember who they were, but they were alluding to an article that had been written by someone from a very different culture. I'm not sure whether it was, um, whether it was, it was, uh, it was a more traditional culture and um and they were commenting that they they uh, funerals in places like australia were unrecognizable as funerals and and uh, the, the general yeah. idea of it was are we ripping ourselves off are we losing something Mel's. of value when we're not allowed to mourn you know the the person who is deceased wouldn't have wanted us to be sad so we've got to make this funeral a celebration well okay but what if we are sad are you telling me I'm not allowed to be? Mm. So therefore, we don't 
we don't you know it's actually it's it's very widespread we're not allowed to lament our, our grandmother Locke and I's grandmother on mum's side can um has told us that uh she hasn't given instruction about whether her funeral is to be sad or happy but she has said it's not to be long and she's she's told <laughs> us that if it goes for more than half an hour she'll be sitting up in the coffin and telling us all off <laughs> so <laughs> Um, yeah. uh, there's um, there is uh, one I think comment worth saying um, and that is uh, it's a quote that I've given before but n- not for probably a year or more on this podcast um, but your comment Locke about or Ken's comment about the incarnation event um, of Christ uh, provides uh, a slightly different angle on this, and there's the poem, which I've forgotten who it's by, Ken, but you used it in a sermon, so you might be able to tell us. Um, it, God's up in heaven, and he doesn't do a thing, with a, th- a million angels watching, and they never move a wing. It's him they ought to crucify instead of you and me, I said to this carpenter, a hanging on a tree. Mm. Yes, I can't tell you who it was by. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> if we ever do feel like God ought have some... If we ever feel like we'd like to kill God, it's already been done. We might leave it there on that wonderfully uplifting note. Um, the uh, We're not quite halfway through, but coming up to halfway through this topic, and it's proven to be a more interesting and, and diverting discussion than I anticipated, and which I'm really glad about. We hope that you, our listener, are also enjoying... The discussion uh, obviously ken and Locke and luke and i enjoy talking about this and we enjoy the the process of recording and um we hope you enjoy listening but uh, once recorded it takes no more effort on our part for it to be downloaded many times as opposed to a few so if you know anyone who you think would benefit from the podcast then please feel free to pass it on to them and if you have any comments, you can send those to us at sabbatschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And uh, we hope that you'll join us again next week.